the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET. This is Detroit Today. Each year here on Detroit Today, we mark Martin Luther King Jr. Day by listening back to his original I Have a Dream speech, which was given right here in Detroit two months before the march on Washington. But first, we'll hear from Michigander and University of Kansas professor Dr. Randall Jelks about his book, Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in Black America. It's all next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. Always, I'm really glad you've chosen to join us. Happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day from all of us here on Detroit Today. Each year here on the show, we commemorate this day by playing Dr. King's original I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered here in Detroit in June of 1963, several months before the address in Washington. But first, we always welcome someone on the show who is helping to both preserve the memory of Dr. King and forward his vision for America, as well as to make us think a little harder about what his legacy means for our nation in the present moment. We've been through so much in the past few years, including some very serious and difficult conversations about race, inequality, and police brutality. My guest today has a new book, which looks at those themes through the lens of democracy, ruminating on them through a series of letters that are addressed to Dr. King himself. Dr. Randall Jelks is a professor of African and African-American studies and American studies at the University of Kansas, and he is the author of the book, Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in black America. Dr. Jelks, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen, for that introduction, and thank you for having me on Detroit Today. Yeah, it's great to have you here. So I I always start with this question with authors, and it's always uh, because I'm very curious about where ideas come from. But I'm especially eager to hear the answer, your answer to this question, which is what inspired you to write this book and especially to come up with this form, these really, really uh, engaging and incisive letters to Dr. Martin Luther King about the things that we are facing today, more than 50 years after his death. Well, Stephen, the original idea came, uh, he was giving a talk, a Martin Luther King Day talk at Elmhurst University in Chicago. It used to be called Elmhurst College. And in that talk, I was invited uh, like a couple of days after uh, Donald Trump was inaugurated. And I thought I needed to give young people some hope. And I sort of crafted this speech as a letter to Dr. King. And then I decided, well, after the speech and the students seemed to appreciate uh, the words, that I I would choose to to think about writing this as a book. And that's what I did. Mm. And this idea of writing the letters to Uh, Dr. King, and using this democracy lens that you chose to filter these letters through, uh, talk about how you how you put all of that together in the well, formation. Well, you know, of the book. my my reading of Martin Luther King is as a radical Democrat um, that he is uh, fighting for the inclusion of all Americans, but particularly black Americans, uh, first in, in, you know, throughout the South, uh, and then Chicago, and as you mentioned earlier, Detroit, and all over the country. And he becomes the 
a voice, a powerful voice for that kind of democratic inclusion into the society. And I think we often uh, miss uh, King as this radical Democrat all the time. And so I wanted to bring that viewpoint. In point of fact, I I would argue that Dr. King's radical democracy is part and parcel coming out of black America. And I read a lot of scholars about democracy, uh, but they they don't mention black America. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, well, this is clearly somebody who is shaped by all the institutions of black America, from Morehouse College to black Baptist churches. and so I wanted to get uh, that voice out in, in new ways that might relate to people today. Yeah. So uh, the text that you use to inspire these letters is Dr. King's letter from Birmingham jail. And I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about that document how important it was and why it is such a significant part of his contribution to, as you point out, the discussion about democracy, but also to the idea of the radical democracy that you are talking about. A letter from a Birmingham jail reads very differently from I Have a Dream, for instance, although there are there are parts of I Have a Dream that really echo, I think, things that you would see in, in Letter from a Birmingham Jail as well. But, but talk just a little bit about that letter that he wrote and yes. why, well, that, yeah, why it's yeah, so important. Yes, that letter is so important because he's sitting alone in solitary confinement, really, and he has to find a magazine, toilet paper, whatever he can to write that that letter on. And he's uh, reflecting to his fellow clergy in uh, Birmingham about what they call moderation, we might call indifference to the struggle for democracy and their unwillingness to be out there and risk on behalf of people who are struggling to create a better world by which we might all live. So that letter is his fullest, perhaps his fullest theological statement about uh, what he believes uh, in the equality of human beings, um, what he believes is the calling of him as a, a Baptist clergy, it is still, every time I read it and every time I have students read it, it still is uh, most powerful. Now, one doesn't have to share his theological assumptions to see how a great a document uh, it is on questions of human rights and the ability to, to protest for right. It is, as uh, to me, as important as the Constitution by which we argue by in the United States. So it's, it's, it's just a, a stunning document and one coming from a place of depth and, and a place of struggle. Yeah. So I, I want to talk about the, the letters in the book and how you chose their, their subjects. Uh, how do you start? on something like this how do you how do you figure out well what are the letters that uh, that we would want to have in this collection written to dr king well i very much uh, it, uh they're they're eclectic because they come from my own thinking and reflections and i really was thinking about uh the 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 constant struggles that black americans are in and so i wanted to write a letter about leadership and the pains that leadership actually causes uh people i think everybody likes to say oh somebody's in the in the leader (laughs) but the the difficulty of that uh What's the meaning for someone like King to sacrifice? Um, and, and then what are the kind of personal dimensions of democracy, we, even when it comes to uh, familial life, family life, relations, uh, intimacy? Uh, and so all of those questions came. And, you know, I, I'm a professor, and I, I deal a lot with 18-year-olds, and so I was trying to keep always uh, those 18-year-olds uh, in my head of, what they might be thinking about, what are the new questions they might want to uh, uh, know, and and um, um, uh, 
try to address a, a, a generation that will follow me. You know, I'm, I'm born in 1956. Uh, I'm a boomer, um, and but you know, I wanted something that uh, they could think about uh, for the future and enter into dialogue with with uh, uh, Gen Zs and millennials and whoever else is coming. Mm. So I, I also wonder what the experience was like for you, this practice of writing these letters. What did that uncover for you about what these issues mean to you as a black man in America today? And I, I guess I'm curious as to whether this exercise comes with any surprises or revelations for you. Well, you know, I mean, the, what came for me is uh, the sort of trying to uh, look uh, squarely at the world around uh, and, um, it, uh, and, and to be uh, to uh, go into some uh, place where trying to be as honest as I could uh, that uh, and, you know, seeing a, a world change. So, for instance, when. Dr. King started out, there was all these African independence movements, and today there are a variety of uh, African countries, uh, 50, 50, I always get it mixed up, 52, uh, uh, I uh, think off the top of my head, and um, now what are the new things that they're facing? Mm -hmm. um, uh, when Dr. King was uh, alive, China was still... Um, uh, had finished the 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 revolution there, um, and now China is a, a powerful uh, country of state capitalism and ha having a deep influence on the African continent. Uh, so I was thinking about all of those things that young people will face in the, in the future, and these are questions all all around us. But still, democracy has a a meaning, and it, governments sh must be transparent, and we must hold governments accountable, and we must protect people from genocide, and we must protect them from uh, uh, d discriminatory uh, voter practices everywhere, mm -hmm. because uh, that's a practice that goes all over the world. Yeah. I'm talking with Dr. Randall Jelks. He is professor of African and African-American studies and American studies at the University of Kansas. He's also the author of the book, Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy, in Black America. We are talking with him as part of our annual celebration of the Martin Luther King Jr. holiday here on Detroit Today. In a little bit, you are going to hear, as you do each year, Dr. King's original I Have a Dream speech, which was delivered here in Detroit in June of 1963, just a few months ahead of the delivery at the Washington, the March on Washington. Um, uh, Dr. Jelks, uh, I, I want to talk a little about Dr. King's legacy and what it looks like and feels like today. As I said in the open uh, for this conversation, we've had a, a pretty rough go of it in terms of uh, uh, racial inequality, the push for racial equality, and the tensions that exist between those of us who want America to be fairer and more inclusive and those who are resistant to that. Um, Dr. King's message, I think, has, has meant different things to African Americans at different times. It's proven its its value over time that way, I think. But but I would love to hear you talk about what his message really means and how it really resonates uh, in the in the light of uh, things like George Floyd uh, in Minneapolis or Ahmaud Arbery. Uh, these really horrific instances of violence against black Americans that we still see uh, sometimes at the hands of police, sometimes at the hands of ordinary citizens. What, what, what should we be drawing from Dr. King right now? First of all, we should uh, draw strength and power uh, from uh, the legacy of Dr. King. I think that uh, we too often um, um, uh, on the global stage, uh, uh, people look to black America um, uh, uh, for 
solutions to democratic questions, and that's a power that we have. I've taught in the Czech Republic. I've taught in West Africa. Uh, I've taught in Germany, and I have students uh, coming to me always uh, interested uh, in uh, the power and strength of black America. And teaching in the Czech Republic, I had lots of uh, conversations with uh, people who are uh, Roma, um, we, we pejoratively called gypsies, and they, you know, wanted they looked to Black America as a model for uh, gaining their rights throughout a multitude of of of, of countries where they they uh, live and are discriminated against. Uh, so I think that Dr. King's legacy is a powerful one. Uh, the instances of racial um, Injustices and the, the the horrendous murders of uh, Ahmaud Arbery, uh, Breonna Taylor, who grew up in in Grand Rapids mm-hmm. uh, before moving to Louisville, uh, you know, uh, George Floyd. Uh, those are a continuation. Uh, those are continuations of uh, the brutality uh, uh, that the dominant society has exercised. But that's changing. Um, what what is driving this is that the demographics of the United States is changing and has changed. And they're like, like I would say similar to, I want to put this internationally, similar to Brazil, you have a tiny white minority um, uh, trying to keep dominance over uh, a pluralistic majority mm-hmm. uh, and black and brown and Asian uh, and so forth. And so this violence is uh, 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 seen, uh, is given to uh, and projected onto uh, those people. But the, the power black America has, and this is what D- Dr. King means, is that we have a global stage now, and we have to exercise that. And I, the, the last thing I want to add is that the lessons of nonviolence yes. is something uh, black America has to exercise within our own community. And that means by to one another. Um, and I think that's 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 crucial to say. We still see the instance of Detroit, Chicago, wherever of of the rise of of, of violence within uh, black communities, and we have to now learn to exercise nonviolence to one another. So th- this message is still powerful, still relevant, uh, and still hopeful. Yeah. Okay, Dr. Randall Jelks, professor at the University of Kansas and author of the really wonderful book, Letters to Martin, Meditations on Democracy in Black America. It was really great to have you here with us on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to observe our annual Martin Luther King Jr. Day tradition here on Detroit Today. We will listen to Dr. King's original I Have a Dream speech given here in Detroit in June of 1963. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. Today on 1019 WDET, I'm Stephen Henderson, and I'm so glad you've joined us. It's a tradition here at Detroit Today to observe the MLK Day holiday by listening to the speech he gave here in Detroit in June of 1963. That speech served as a prelude to his most famous speech given during the March on Washington two months later. My... Good friend, Reverend C.L. Franklin, and all 
all of the officers and the members of the Detroit Council of Human Rights, distinguished platform guests, ladies and gentlemen. I cannot begin to say to you this afternoon how thrilled I am, and I cannot begin to tell you the deep joy that comes to my heart as I participate with you in what I consider the largest and greatest demonstration for freedom ever held in the United States. be said because it is a magnificent demonstration of discipline. With all of the thousands and hundreds of thousands of people engaged in this demonstration today, there has not been one reported incident of violence. This is a magnificent demonstration of our commitment to nonviolence in this struggle for freedom all over the United States. And I want to commend the leadership of this community for making this great event possible and making such a great event possible through such disciplined channels. September the 22nd, 1862, to be exact, a great and noble American, Abraham Lincoln, signed an executive order, which was to take effect on January the 1st, 1863. This executive order was called the Emancipation Proclamation. It served to free the Negro from the bondage of physical slavery. But 100 years later, the Negro in the United States of America still isn't free. But now, more than ever before, America is forced to grapple with this problem for the shape of the world today does not afford us the luxury of an anemic democracy. And the price that this nation must pay for the continued oppression and exploitation of the Negro or any other minority group is the price of its own destruction. 
for the hour is late. The clock of destiny is kicking out and we must act now before it is too late. The events of Birmingham, Alabama, and the more than 60 communities that have started protest movements since Birmingham are indicative of the fact that the Negro is now determined to be free. For Birmingham tells us something in glaring terms. It says first that the Negro is no longer willing to accept racial segregation in any of its dimensions. But we have come to see that segregation is not only sociologically untenable, it is not only politically unsound, it is morally wrong and sinful. Yes, Segregation is a cancer in the body politic which must be removed before our democratic health can be realized. Segregation is wrong because it is nothing but a new form of slavery covered up with certain niceties of complexity. Segregation is wrong because it is a system of adultery perpetuated by an illicit intercourse between injustice and immorality. South and all over the nation, we are simply saying that we will no longer sell our birthright of freedom for the mess of segregated parties. In a real sense, we are through with segregation now, henceforth, and forevermore. something else. They reveal to us that the Negro has a new sense of dignity and a new sense of self-respect. For years, I think we will all agree that probably the most damaging effect of segregation been what it has done to the soul of the segregated as well as the segregator. It has given the segregator a false sense of in, uh, superiority and it has left the segregated with a false sense of inferiority. So because of the legacy of slavery and segregation, many Negroes lost faith in themselves and many felt that they were inferior, but then something happened to the Negro. Circumstances made it possible and necessary for him to travel more. The coming of the automobile, the upheavals of two world wars, the Great Depression. 
And so his rural plantation background gradually gave way to urban industrial life. And even his economic life was rising through the growth of industry. The influence of organized labor expanded educational opportunities. And even his cultural life was rising through the steady decline of crippling illiteracy. And all of these forces conjoined to cause the Negro to take a new look at himself. <laughs> Negro masses. Negro masses all over began to re-evaluate themselves. The Negro came to feel that he was somebody. His religion revealed to him. His religion revealed to him that God loves all of his children and that all men are made in his image and that figuratively speaking, every man from a base black to a treble white is significant on God's keyboard. crowd with eloquent poet, fleecy locks and black complexion, cannot forfeit nature's claim. Skin may differ, but affection dwells in black and white the same. Were I so tall as to reach the pole, or to grasp the ocean at a span, I must be measured by my soul. The mind is the standard of the man. But these events that are taking place in our nation tell us something else. They tell us that the Negro and his allies in the white community now recognize the urgency of the moment. I know we have heard a lot of cries saying, slow up and cool off. We still hear these cries. They are telling us over and over again that you're pushing things too fast, and so they're saying, cool off. Well, the only answer that we can give to that is that we've cooled off all too long, and that is the danger. There's always a danger if you cool off too much that you will end up in a deep freeze. <laughs> well, they're saying you need to put on brakes. The only answer that we can give to that is that the motor's now cranked up and we're moving up the highway of freedom toward the city of equality. And we can't afford to stop now because our nation has a date with destiny. We must keep moving. Then that is another cry. They say, why don't you do it in a gradual manner? Well, gradualism is little more than escapism and do-nothingism, which ends up in standstillism. brothers and sisters in Africa and Asia are moving with jet-like speed toward the goal of political independence. And in some communities, we are still moving at horse and buggy pace toward the gaining of a hamburger and a cup of coffee at a lunch counter. So we must say now is the time to make real the promises of democracy. Right. Now is the time to transform this pending national elegy into a creative psalm of brotherhood. Now is the time to lift our nation.
Now is the time to lift our nation from the quicksands of racial injustice to the solid rock of racial justice. Now is the time to get rid of segregation and discrimination. Now is the time. So this social revolution taking place can be summarized in three little words. They are not big words. One does not need an extensive vocabulary to understand them. They are the words all here now. We want all of our rights. We want them here and we want them now. We're going to take a quick break. Coming up on Detroit Today, the conclusion of Martin Luther King Jr.'s original I Have a Dream speech delivered in Detroit in June of see about this struggle is that by and large it has been a nonviolent struggle. Let nobody make you feel that those who are engaged or who are engaging in the demonstrations in communities all across the South are resorting to violence. These are few in number, for we've come to see the power of nonviolence. We've come to see that this method is not a weak method, for it's the strong man who can stand up amid opposition, who can stand up amid violence being inflicted upon him and not retaliate with violence. You see, this method has a way of disarming the opponent. It exposes his moral defenses. It weakens his morale, and at the same time, it works on his conscience. And he just doesn't know what to do. If he doesn't beat you, wonderful. If he beats you, you develop the quiet courage of accepting blows without retaliating. If he doesn't put you in jail, wonderful. Nobody with any sense likes to go to jail. But if he puts you in jail, you go in that jail and transform it from a dungeon of shame to a haven of freedom and human dignity. Even if he tries to kill you, you develop the inner conviction that there are some things so dear, some things so precious, some things so eternally true that they are worth dying for. And I submit to you that if a man has not discovered something that he will die for, he isn't fit to live. This method has wrought wonders as a result of the nonviolent freedom ride movement. Segregation in public transportation has almost passed away absolutely in the South. As a result of the sit-in movement at lunch counters, more than 285 cities have now integrated their lunch counters in the South. I say to you, there's power in this method. And I think by following this approach, it will also help us to go into the new age that is emerging with the right attitude. For nonviolence not only calls upon its adherents to avoid external physical violence, but it calls upon them to avoid internal violence of spirit. It calls on them to engage in that something called love. 
And I know it is difficult sometimes. When I say love at this point, I'm not talking about an affectionate emotion. It's nonsense to urge people, oppress people to love their oppressors in an affectionate sense. I'm talking about something much deeper. I'm talking about a sort of understanding, creative, redemptive goodwill for all men. We are coming to see now, the psychiatrists are saying to us, that many of the strange things that happen in the subconscious, many of the inner conflicts are rooted in hate. And so they are saying, love or perish. But Jesus told us this long time ago, and I can still hear that voice crying through the vista of time, saying, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Pray for them that despitefully use you. And that is still a voice saying to every potential Peter, put up your sword. History is replete with the bleached bones of nations. History is cluttered with the wreckage of communities that failed to follow this command. And isn't it marvelous to have a method of struggle where it is possible to stand up against an unjust system, fight it with all of your might, never accept it, and yet not stoop to violence and hatred in the process? This is what you have. magnificent new militancy within the Negro community all across this nation. And I welcome this as a marvelous development. The Negro over America is saying he's determined to be free, and he is militant enough to stand up. But this new militancy must not lead us to the position of distrusting every white person who lives in the United States. There are some white people in this country who are as determined to see the Negro free as we are to be free. This new militancy must be kept within understanding boundaries. And then another thing I can understand, we've been pushed around so long. We've been the victims of lynching mobs so long. We've been the victims of economic injustice so long, still the last hide and the first fight all over this nation. And I know the temptation. I can understand from a psychological point of view why some caught up in the clutches of the injustices surrounding them, almost respond with bitterness and come to the conclusion that the problem can't be solved within, and they talk about getting away from it in terms of racial separation. But even though I can understand it psychologically, I must say to you this afternoon that this isn't the way. Black supremacy is as dangerous as white supremacy. afternoon that God is not interested merely in the freedom of black men and brown men and yellow men. God is interested in the freedom of the whole human race. And I believe that with this philosophy and this determined struggle, we will be able to go on in the days ahead and transform the jangling discords of our nation into a beautiful symphony of brotherhood. As I move toward my conclusion, you're asking, I'm sure, what can we do here in Detroit to help in the struggle in the South? Well, there are several things that you can do. One of them you've done already, and I hope you will do it in even greater dimensions before we leave this meeting. Now, the second thing that you can do to help us down in Alabama and Mississippi and all over the South is to work with determination to get rid of any segregation and discrimination in Detroit. Realizing that injustice anywhere 
is a threat to justice everywhere. And we've got to come to see that the problem of racial injustice is a national problem. No community in this country can boast of clean hands in the area of brotherhood. Now, in the North, it's different in that it doesn't have the legal sanction that it has in the South, but it has its subtle and hidden form. And it exists in three areas, in the area of employment discrimination, in the area of housing discrimination, and in the area of de facto segregation in the public schools. And we must come to see that de facto segregation in the North is just as injurious of the actual, as the actual segregation in the South. And so if you want to help us in Alabama and Mississippi and over the South, do all that you can to get rid of the problem here. And then we also need your support in order to get the civil rights bill that the president is offering passed. And that's a reality. Let's not fool ourselves. This bill isn't going to get through if we don't put some work in it and some determined pressure. And this is why I've said that in order to get this bill through, we've got to rouse the conscience of the nation. And we ought to march to Washington more than 100,000 in order to save. In order to say that we are determined, and in order to engage in a nonviolent protest to keep this issue before the conscience of the nation. And if we will do this, we will be able to bring that new day of freedom into being. If we will do this, we will be able to make the American dream a reality. And I do not want to give you the impression that it's going to be easy. There can be no great social gain without individual pain. Before the victory for brotherhood is won, some will have to get scarred up a bit. Before the victory is won, some more will be thrown into jail. Before the victory is won, some, like Medgar Evers, may have to face physical death. But a physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children and their white brothers from an eternal psychological death, then nothing can be more redemptive. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names. But we must go on with a determination and with a faith that this problem can be solved. And so I go back to the South not in despair. I go back to the South not with a feeling that we are caught in a dark dungeon that will never lead to a way out. I go back believing that the new day is coming. And so this afternoon I have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day, right down in Georgia and Mississippi and Alabama, the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to live together as brothers. I have a dream this afternoon dream. that one day, <laughs> one day little white children and little Negro children will be able to join hands as brothers and sisters. I have a dream this afternoon that one day, one day, men will no longer burn down houses in the Church of God simply because people want to be free. I have a dream this afternoon that there will be a day that we will, not long, we will no longer face the atrocities that Emmett Till had to face or Medgar Evers had to face, but that all men can live with dignity. I have a dream this afternoon that my four little children and my four little children will not come up in the same young days that I came up within, but they will judge, be judged on the basis of the content of their character, not the color of their skin. I have a dream this afternoon that one day right here in Detroit, Negroes will be able to buy a house or rent a house anywhere that their money will carry them and they will be able to get a job. Yes, I have a dream this afternoon. 
One day in this land, the words of Amos will become real. And justice will roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I have a dream this evening that one day we will recognize the words of Jefferson that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have a dream this afternoon. I have a dream that one day every valor shall be exalted and every hill and mountain shall be made low. The rough places will be made plain and the crooked places will be made straight and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together. I have a dream this afternoon that the brotherhood of man will become a reality in this day with this faith. I will go out and carve a tunnel of hope through the mountain of despair with this faith. I will go out with you and transform dark yesterdays into bright tomorrows. With this faith, we will be able to achieve this new day when all of God's children, black men and white men, Jews and Gentiles, Protestants and Catholics will be able to join hands and sing with the Negroes in the spiritual of all, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty. That was Martin Luther King's original I Have a Dream speech delivered here in Detroit in June of 1963. That's going to do it for us today. This is 1019 WDET, Detroit's NPR station, your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.